So I thought to start out, I'd mention these questions that I sent out via email a few days ago. Um, the idea of the small groups is to share sort of what we're learning in our life and specifically in terms of the questions and teachings that are coming up in the course. And uh, there's a way to do that all day long. So it's nice to do it formally, to read some of the materials or to look over the notes maybe that you took at the class or took after the class. And some people, you know, like to take in, digest a lot of material, but you don't need to digest a lot of material. I put it out more as a resource that you might come back to. Remember the all these articles, these talks, they just sit on that website. So you know, who knows, in 15 months you might really be interested in dukkha for some reason, and you might want to pick up some of these readings you didn't take up during the course. And so you can just poke around and just find one little article or one part of one article, and you might find a sentence or two that's really rich, and some, for some reason, illuminates your experience, makes it more clear to yourself, then hold on to it. Like, keep that particular teaching close at hand for a while, for a few days, for a few weeks, write it down, have it somewhere where you're likely to re-look at it. So uh, instead of quantity, like consuming a lot of the teachings, you might think of qu uh, quality, more a few things that seem relevant to you, whether it's something I said or something the Buddha said or something you've read or something that you discovered independent of the materials for the Course that anything that will help illuminate the experience of dukkha. And then what's so great about the small groups every two weeks is that's a wonderful thing to share in the small groups, like what what you're discovering and what maybe teaching supported that seeing, what you weren't seeing before. That's the definition of insight, is the mind has seen something it hasn't seen before. And really, what could be more relevant then this heart or mind seeing something about the experience of dukkha, stress, that it hasn't seen very clearly before. It really is the most relevant thing. Stress and the cessation of stress, suffering and the cessation of suffering, is by its very definition the most relevant thing. And if it doesn't seem relevant, it's because you're using a different definition of dukkha or stress or suffering. Because that's what we mean by stress and suffering. It's what's most relevant. It really is for human beings, or probably most beings, it's, it is what is front and center. And even not knowing we're suffering is suffering. This is a chapter in uh, Jack, uh, Joseph Goldstein's book, you know, call it Not Seeing Dukkha is Dukkha. He says, suppose your body is carrying a lot of discomfort or tension, but you're not aware of it. You are carrying it around without knowing it. That discomfort unconsciously conditions how you are, how you feel. So just because we don't know we're suffering, that the mind is burdened in some way, doesn't mean that it's not affecting our whole life. In a way, our whole life... Uh, unfolds 
out of the denial or the distraction or whatever strategy we're using to remain unaware of the stress or the suffering or the discomfort of the mind or the body. So it's actually a step toward freedom and release to know the dukkha that's there, that is here, whether it's physical or mental. Remember, there are three types we talked about last week for those who weren't here. There's dukkha dukkha, and this is one of the, in one of the handouts that's on the webpage. There's dukkha dukkha, that's the ordinary experience of unpleasant mental or unpleasant physical experience. There's uh, viparinama dukkha, which is the dukkha of change, that even when we're fortunately receiving pleasant experience, because on some level, conscious or not, the mind knows it will change, it's already unpleasant knowing that this isn't forever, this pleasant experience isn't forever. And there's sankara dukkha, the dukkha that's inherent really in the the essence of existence itself, that there isn't any way for the mind or the heart to find ground. That, And this is what I said last week, Judy mentioned it earlier this evening when we were chatting before the class, this teaching that, and I mentioned it in the guided sit, there's this basic expectation that the purpose of life, the purpose of having experience is to be happy, to sort of derive happiness from our experiences. It's a basic assumption we make about the world of experience, that it's really here to deliver happiness to me. And from the Buddhist point of view, this is a basic misperception. The world isn't, the world doesn't arise in any way to deliver happiness to living beings. That doesn't mean we don't experience moments of pleasant experience as living beings. We do. Clearly, we do. But it's not the purpose of life to make living beings happy. Life is just life, or the you know causes and conditions, what makes up this, is just what it is. So there's this uh, awakening to dukkha, or the limitations or the unsatisfactoriness of existence is coming into alignment with something that's really important. And the interesting thing is, it's not the suffering we experience as human beings isn't because life isn't here to bring us happiness. The suffering we experience arises because we think life is here to deliver happiness, but in fact it's not. So that regular, constant, almost betrayal, sense of betrayal, or the regular or constant experience of thinking we're finally going to get the happiness that life is here to deliver, and then to be disappointed. It's always a little bit out of our reach. I feel, I really do feel I have a nice home, but it could be nicer. And so, I'm not willing to be content with the home I have because with just a little bit of effort, it could be nicer. So there's this overreaching, this reaching for 
something that's out there, the, the absence of contentedness. And this is just built into the fabric of existence, of a mind-body existence. And so we call this sankara dukkha, because there isn't ground. There isn't the ground for happiness or satisfaction. It's not really what this existence is about. So in just simple terms, for what it's worth, the Buddha's approach isn't so much to derive satisfaction, a, a meaningful, lasting satisfaction from sense experience. From the Buddha's point of view, that lasting satisfaction arises from nibbana, from the cessation of trying to get satisfaction from experience. So that's a real turning on its head, this basic misperception that, you know, if only I get my act together... I'll be able to derive some meaningful happiness from this existence. And the Buddha is saying, Honey, if you start to relate to this existence, this mind-body experiencing, this beingness, if you start to relate to it as nature, life as nature with no center, so there isn't, we're not relying or depending or reinforcing the sense of a somebody trying to get happiness from experience, but just letting the personality, the world, letting all things be, not thinking it's about getting something from it. We may realize a happiness that's unconditioned, that's not about the way the world is, the way experience is in the moment. So some questions. So that's that question itself, or that comment itself, could be something you reflect on, like in little and big ways, how you relate to experience, like to share in your small group, um, how you caught yourself, catch yourself relating to experience, relating to the meal you're about to eat or you're eating, relate to the clothes you're going to put on, to present yourself to the world today or tomorrow that you relate as if experience in some way is going to deliver satisfaction. To notice that, to notice the betrayal or the um, it not delivering in, in whatever way you experience that. And to also relate to the dropping of that misperception, that idea that the world of experience is here to deliver happiness. Like the Buddha said, I mentioned somewhere I think in the guided set, that it's the clinging. The Buddha equated dukkha or stress or suffering with clinging to the mind-body experiences, the experience of the mind and body or the five aggregates. Clinging, identifying with feeling, the feeling tone of the moment, perceptions, mental formations, the sort of content arising, intentions arising in the moment, and consciousness itself. That's what he meant by mind. Identifying or clinging to aspects of the mind, or identifying, clinging to aspects of the body, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. It's that identification as if, it, by identifying with experience, taking experience personally, we will personally be satisfied by the experience, the mental or physical experience. But clearly it's not the case, because there has been more than an infinite number of experiences, and yet 
nobody here has been completely satisfied by any of the experiences we've had. But sure enough, when I go home tonight and I do whatever I do as the carrot to get me to the end of the day, you know, whatever has played in my mind that I didn't catch with wisdom, you know, oh yeah, but when you go home, you can, you know, entertain yourself this way or eat that or do this or that. You know, that's, just get through the day or get through the week, get to retirement or whatever we dangle in front of ourselves, ourselves. then we want to see like what it is and what it isn't, that experience. We, we want to be mindful. There's a, forget it, where this, they discovered this. I think it was a Burmese teacher who shared this. And uh, it was a famous, uh, if I'm remembering the story right, maybe some of you remember it better than I do. Um, could have been Steve Armstrong that told the story a while back about, I think he heard it from somebody, not from the person himself. But there was a monk in a cave that was highly revered as a wise person, someone with deep insight. And uh, at some point they checked the cave. Now some of these caves are quite nice, so don't always assume that these caves, they, they often will sort of build a little brick wall in front, sort of like the front side of a house, and the back side will be the cave. And, you know, and they can even have a little heater and all kinds of things, lights, electricity. But anyway, I'm not sure about this particular cave. But they went in, some people went into the cave, and on the side, on the wall, was written, Oh, joy to discover there is no happiness in the world. Anybody know the specifics of this, where this came from? But anyway, that's something you can contemplate. This is sort of homework. You could use it in your sharing tonight, but uh, maybe as part of the homework for next week, to, uh, in your own experience and with your imagination, like what would that person be, how would that person be understanding like, if that is true, that somebody experienced great joy in realizing there's no happiness in the world of experience, what the, what might that feel or look like for me here and now? Because I think what that person's pointing to is like, what a joy it is to give up this very stressful activity of seeking satisfaction from what can't deliver satisfaction. This paradigm shift, you know, from believing the world is here to deliver significant, lasting satisfaction, to seeing that this world is here to teach us that there's no satisfaction here. That satisfaction the heart seeks, intuitively seeks. Because we do, don't we? I think it's true, most not all the time, but often when we're reflective, the mind somewhat in balance, there's some intuition that happiness is available. I mean, I think that's what keeps bringing us back into the world of experience, because there's some intuition we should be able to be happy and at ease and free. But we erroneously think that it will come from finishing the renovations in the house or getting my body into shape or, 
you know, taking care of this relationship problem or getting people to love me more or whatever, figuring out how to get samadhi. We think, you know, if I get this act together, then I'll get that happiness that I intuit is available. But the happiness, maybe the happiness we intuit is this happiness of not needing to be happy or the happiness of not seeking happiness where it can't be found. What a relief it is to no longer seek for happiness where it can't be found. I heard somebody on Minnesota Public Radio telling this old uh, Sufi story from this legendary character called Nasarudin. Not not clear whether the person was a historic figure or not, but kind of the embodiment of wild wisdom, crazy wisdom, um, or wise fool. And there's a famous story of him searching for a lost jewel under a oil lamp, you know, um, and he's searching, and eventually the neighbors come out and start helping him look. And after a while, one of the neighbors says, well, where exactly did you lose this ring? And Nasarudin says, well, it was way over there. And you think the neighbors are dumbfounded, like, why are we looking here? He said, well, there's a lamp here. <laughs> and this is like dukkha, because our the way our sensory mechanism is, you know, how we're sensitive to these six things, thinking and seeing and hearing, we search for happiness through sense sensitivity, through the sense gates. We just assume that that's where release, happiness, freedom lies, through some kind of sense experience. Human beings, maybe all living beings, but human beings, we are seduced by sensitivity. We make it more than it is. We think it will deliver through some sensitivity to some experience, being sensitive to some experience, will take care of this existential itch, this uneasiness of heart, will relieve the heart's uneasiness. So we endlessly seek some sense experience, some thought, some sight, some sound, some touch, some combination of these things, some taste, that will relieve the uneasiness of heart, but it's the seeking itself that makes the heart uneasy. And this is really the essence of dukkha. So that's kind of the bigger picture of dukkha that you could reflect on in the small group, and it's just generally reflect on over the weeks of the course. And then specifically this week, um, we're asked to look at dukkha dukkha. Remember, there are three types of dukkha. There's dukkha dukkha, Basic experience of mental and physical unpleasantness. And this is such an interesting thing to reflect on. Like, what actually is the experience of physical unpleasantness? And the interesting thing is it's hard to see. Because when we bring a balanced attention to physical pain, for example, the experience changes. So this is the interesting thing about physical pain, just on that basic level, because it's so accessible. Probably everybody here, to some degree, can immediately connect with the experience of physical discomfort, however ordinary or subtle it might be, or maybe for some of you really intense. 
But it's not a fixed thing. Like the actual experience of what we call pain depends on how we're relating to it. So it's so interesting to see that, how it changes when we get interested in it, like willing to be mindful of it. What is the experience of physical pain when we bring a steady, balanced, non-judging, non-aversive attention to it? So there's the... You know, so this is what I find. Like, I have a lot of pain in my body. And I feel it when I'm, like, focusing on my talk. But when I bring my attention to the pain, it changes. And this is something to share in the small group and something to really see as an important teacher. Like, to have a sense of humility, we don't really know what we mean when we say pain. I mean, we kind of do. Like, we know the experience of physical pain that we're running from or we're trying to control or we're trying to get rid of. But that's more the experience of what we talk about when we use the word dukkha or suffering. So what is actually the experience of physical pain? And the same goes with emotional and mental pain. You really want to get a sense of the difference in just to use different words to make it a little less confusing. Let's just use pain as the experience of unpleasant physical sensations or unpleasant mental uh, states, and suffering as the experience of resisting unpleasant mental experience or resisting unpleasant mental experience. So just to distinguish, the resistance is what we call suffering. You can resist in different ways. You can resist by trying to get rid of it, or you can resist it by denying it, or imagining it as something different than what it is. Like Bhante Gunaratana mentioned in his article. So, the thing to begin in the discussion in the small groups, but just to continue with through the course and forever, is this humility. <coughs> with physical discomfort. And uh, sometime soon, I'll scan a couple pages from Bhante Gunaratana's book, uh, Mindfulness of Plain English. If you have your own copy, I read from page 108, I think it was, but then pages 110, 111, and maybe 113, uh, 112. So 110, 111, and 112. He's talking about working with physical pain in a very straightforward way, and I find it quite useful. Um, and so you might want to review that. Maybe I'll just read a sentence or two before we break the small groups. He says, handling pain, pain is a two-stage process. First, now he's talking about physical pain. First, Get rid of the pain, <laughs> if possible, or at least get rid of it, uh, rid of it as much as possible. Right. So it's not about being masochistic. The first step is physical handling. Maybe the pain is illness of one sort or another, headache, fever, bruises, or whatever. In this case, employ standard medical treatments before you sit down to meditate. Take your medicine. Apply the liniment. Do whatever you ordinarily would do. Then, 
there are certain pains that are specific when he goes on to talk about sitting. After you've made these, all these various adjustments, you may find that you still have some lingering pain. If that is the case, try step two. Make the pain your object of meditation. Don't jump up and get excited. I'm sorry. Don't jump up and don't get excited. Just observe the pain mindfully. When the pain becomes demanding, you will find it pulling your attention off the breath. Don't fight back. Just let your attention slide easily over onto the simple sensation. Go into the pain fully. Don't block the experience. Explore the feeling. Get beyond your avoiding reaction and go into the pure sensations that lie below that. You will discover that there are two things present. The first is the simple sensation, pain itself. Second is your resistance to that sensation. Now this resistance will be here. It's, it's not a mistake. The question is, how far does that resistance go? There's really no way, initially at least, when pain is present in the body, and by the way, it's the same with mental pain, emotional pain. There's really no way when pain is available or arising for the heart not to have this intention to recoil from it or to strike out at it or to run away, you know, into distraction. It's a conditioned response. It's just how the mind is conditioned. You know, it's in the very, the way we see this so obviously, it's like you touch something hot, just that physical response of moving your hand away. It's just a reflex. Whether they're basically built in, not just these physical reflexes, but there are these mental reflexes that have been conditioned in. So the key is to begin to see them. To see the unpleasantness, that's the first thing. And to see the intention arise, get the hell out of here, you know, or whatever that the feeling or the quality of that intention is. And then the key is to see that that intention is just that. It's just an intention. Just because it's there, that recoiling intention, doesn't mean we need to take it personally or act it out or do anything with it. It is possible to know the intention the compulsion without doing anything more, but just to see it. But see, it's essential that we see it because not seeing it, because generally, given the way the mind's conditioned, it's going to be a strong intention arising in that moment, especially if the pain, the physical pain is strong, the physical discomfort or unpleasantness is strong. Then the compulsion to run or to fight or to struggle is going to be quite strong. So we have to be mindful, present with it in order to leave it alone. There's no leaving it alone unconsciously. If we're unconscious, we're going to believe, we're going to get identified with that intention and in one way or another act in a way that reinforces the stress. And this is, I'll leave us with this uh, sutta many of you have heard before. <coughs> sometimes translated as the dart or the arrow. This is um, Ajahn Tanisaro's translation. I'll just read a few parts. But uh, I mentioned this in the email I sent to everybody about notice when you shoot the second arrow. I assume that many of you would know what I meant by that because 
It's when our response to unpleasant mental or physical experience turns out to be even more stressful or as stressful as the unpleasant mental or physical experience. So the resistance actually, most of the time, is the bigger of the two. Life certainly comes with physical and mental pain. When we lose a friend, it hurts. Or when we stub our toe, it hurts. But the question is, what do we do? Because we're going to have the intention to resist that pain, to run from it, to deny it. But we don't have to believe that. We don't have to identify with it. So here's what the Buddha said. Practitioners, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, like all of us, that's my addition, feels feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of neither pleasure nor pain, what we call neutral. A well-instructed disciple of the noble ones also feels feelings of pleasure, pain, and neutrality. So what different, what what difference, what distinction, what distinguishing factor is there between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, the wise ones, and the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person? The Buddha, as he often does, answers his own question. He says, When touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, laments, beats one's breast, becomes distraught, so one feels two pains, physical and mental. This is the second arrow. Just as if they were to shoot themselves with an arrow and right afterward were to shoot oneself with another one so that one would feel the pains of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with the feeling of pain, the uninstructed person sorrows, grieves, laments, beats one's breast, becomes distraught, so one feels two pains physical and mental. Later, the Buddha asks the question, why is that? He answers his own question again, because the uninstructed person does not discern any escape from painful feeling aside from sensual pleasure. So all of our strategies to resist, to deny, to fight back, to struggle, to get distracted, it's just our attempt. We think that the only way to get rid of the unpleasantness of the present moment is to have something pleasant. So that's why we struggle to get rid of, because we're wanting the release, the ending of this unpleasant experience. We get distracted because we want something nice. So we see that all the time. Like, that's that carrot that I dangle in front of me. Like, I'll go home. I'll stretch out my legs instead of sitting cross-legged. You know, I'll put something on that will entertain my mind so I don't have to feel what I'm feeling. I don't have to be a human being. I can be lost in whatever entertainment, you know, or eating or whatever it might be. So this idea that pleasant experience will you know, deliver salvation or deliver us from the unpleasantness. The Buddha continues, As one is delighting in sensual pleasures, pleasure, any passion obsession with regard to that feeling of pleasure obsesses one. One does not discern as it actually is present 
the origination, passing away, allure, drawback, or escape from that feeling. As one does not discern that, then any ignorance obsession with regard to that feeling obsesses him, obsesses her or one. So this running from the ordinary and unavoidable unpleasantness in life sets in motion so many unwholesome patterns. Because we're threatened, the mind then becomes threatened not just by the unpleasantness of the moment, of the mind or physical experience, but it's also obsessed, has problems with the pleasantness that I can get by running into some place. Because I know on some level it's not going to last. So I'm always needing more. And even ordinary neutral experience is threatening. Because it isn't significant counterweight to the threat of unpleasant. So the whole world of being identified or caught up with the feeling tone of experience. And this is really what I meant when I said we think the world is here to deliver satisfaction. It's basically on the level of the feelings we get, the feeling tone we get from sense experience. We think that somehow, through being competent and and fortunate, we should be able to get the stream of pleasant mental and physical experiences. And that's what we're looking for. I mean, to be honest, this is something that you can confess. You can use your three minutes to confess. You know, I've been trying in my life to string together constant mental and physical pleasantness. Because really, that defines a lot of what we do in life. And how has it worked? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.